If you will, turn with me in your Bibles this morning. We're going to continue on in our series in Malachi. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verses, verse 17, the end of the chapter. And then we'll move on uh, to the fir- through the verse, first five verses of Malachi chapter 3. You know, if you were to turn on the news or you were just to look around you, go on the internet, whatever it is, there are, there's wickedness and evil all around us. I, I don't think that there's anyone in this room that I would have to try to convince of just how depraved this world is. And it can be so easy when you look at those situations. After a while, you start to think, does God even care? Does he even know what's going on here? Does he even care? Does, is, is the wickedness going to be punished? Will he deal with it? Because it just seems to go on and on. And in our passage this morning, what we're going to find is that the Lord does care. He does care about blessing good. He does care about punishing evil. And the means by which he has done this is that he has sent Christ in order to call the people from darkness. And to cover them in his blood. And that one day he will return again to judge the wicked, the evil, and the unrepentant. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let us read together from Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. It says, But you, or you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and bring offering, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and and as in former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, the grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Now, as we approach this passage, I think it's good that we kind of start with a little picture in our heads. You know, when I was a a young boy... My mom went out in the backyard and she planted a tree uh, next to my sister and I. And and initially, she took a picture of it the first time. And initially, the tree was about, you know, yay high. 
Um, actually, probably smaller because I was probably shorter. But it was about yay high. We were just taller than it. And every year we'd go out and we would take a picture of my sister and I next to that tree. And over time, the tree got bigger and bigger. And it now, if I were to go back to my home uh, 20-some years later, uh, that tree is a, it's a very tall and firm maple tree standing in our backyard. But if you were to look at that tree from time to time and some of the things that it had to go through, you know, if you were to look at the torrential rain that would fall on it some days, or you were to look at the sun just beating relentlessly down on it others, or at other times the wind that was blowing it and causing it to teeter, if you were to look at those moments in isolation, and not in terms of the, the whole scope, you'd be looking at the stress that's facing that tree and thinking, oh, there's no way it's going to make it. This tree will surely die at some point if it has to go through all of that. You would think that there was no sort of blessing that would come later on. Surely that tree will not survive. And if you didn't have a viewpoint towards God, you would think ultimately... No one cares. Just part of the, 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 the way life works. It'll die. No one cares. Move on. But we know that's not the story. That's not the full picture. Part of what goes into the, the suffering of the tree, the torrential rain or the beating sun or the powerful wind, is the way in which that is shaping and forming the tree to grow so that it might be a blessing that it can pour out upon others but in the moment you might say what's happening here in the moment of that stress what's going on you might even start to ask if you were to transfer those properties to another person going through sort of the stress or the pain or the trials that come with life does God care where is he this is what we see the people of Israel wrestling with here at the beginning. And we're told these words weary the Lord. Why? Because he has spent time in the previous two chapters explaining to them the way that he has loved them and the way that he has cared for them and he has shown them time after time. And yet they say, everyone who does evil, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. He's allowing the evil, the wickedness to go on. Does he even care? Where is the God of justice? Is he even here? Somewhat ironically, much of or the pain and suffering that is described as having come upon Israel is by their own wickedness and doing. And yet, what do they do? They look to God and say, he doesn't even care for the suffering that we're going through. And what we see here is the people doubting his goodness, asking the question ultimately, why does God allow evil to exist? Why does God allow suffering? This is the question of theodicy. Not the the Odyssey, the famous children's radio program from when I was younger at least, but theodicy. Why does God allow it? And at this point, as you ask, why does God allow evil? From an unbeliever's perspective, we are often met with one of two responses. One might take 
the position and say, well, there is a God that exists, and he just tolerates the evil. He doesn't really care in the end. To which the question must be asked in response, well then, is he really good? We would have to affirm that no. If God allows evil to go unchecked and unpunished, he is not truly good. Because a just and truly holy God cannot allow the evil to go unchecked and unpunished. And so if such a God existed, he would not only not be good, but he would also not be God. Because a truly holy and good God must deal with the problem of evil. But the second response that you may find to issues of trial and tribulation and why evil exists may come from one who claims not to believe in God. And they may say, well, the reason that evil is allowed to exist is because God doesn't actually exist. If God actually existed, he would deal with the evil. But we don't see him dealing with the evil, therefore he must not exist. To which the response must be then, why then does evil exist at all? If God doesn't exist, why then does evil exist? And ultimately, how do you even know what is truly good if this God does not exist? The response to that then is, well, you see, I don't really need a God to tell me what is good. This is is the de facto response of the majority of our culture when facing the problems of evil, right? We might say to them, well, then how do you know what is good? And the response is, well, I don't, I don't need a God to tell me what is good. I can judge that for myself. I'm fully capable of seeing. It's simple. Just look out there. You can see what is good and what is evil. I don't need a God to tell me how to act and how to do what is right. The problem with this argument, however, is that it is an argument that comes purely from culture. And whatever it is that the culture is deeming as good. And as soon as another culture disagrees with what you deem as good, you now have a conflict about what is truly good. What is it? How do you decide whether or not one culture is view towards what is good is truly good, or another culture's view. You must elevate your beliefs above another culture at that point. And if we are honest, if we are honest, typically just the majority culture opinion wins out in that situation. It's not actually about what is truly good, what is truly correct, what is truly right or what is truly evil, but whatever the culture deems as such. We're seeing this shift happening, and in many ways has already happened, and it's been happening for years within American culture. That there were certain ways of thinking that life ought to be, that everyone took as being true and right, and for many years, those things lined up with what was truly what was right in God's eyes. But the longer that the culture goes, it shifts. 
And now what is right is just shifting with culture. What we see was, is that we were never truly built upon God's ideals. The entire time, man was just saying, this is what I think is right. The follow-up, though, to all of this about, well, then, which one, which one is truly right? Which culture is correct? The agnostic or the atheist will then respond with, well, I can see it through the evolutionary processes, right? We can see over time that we've arrived at this conclusion together that this is the best way to live. However, the problem here is that secular science just wants to claim that they're making observations. They don't want to say that they're making moral assumptions, and this is a moral assumption. They want to claim they're just making observations of the data. And as soon as the cultural narrative no longer fits the data, we begin to interpret the data differently to our new cultural narrative. And so I hope what you can see through all of this is that it is constantly shifting sand if a God does not exist. If there is not truly a good and just God, what is truly good, what is truly right, and what is truly evil are constantly shifting in the eyes of humanity. And this is ultimately one of the greatest evidences for why we know God truly does exist. Because if you look throughout history, think about it. Murdering, uh, justifying Christian reasons to justify Christian, in quotes, please don't hear me wrong. Christian reasons to find reasons why we might need to enslave a race of people. Or Christian reasons why we might need to commit genocide against entire groups of humans. You see what's happened? These are not truly things of God. These are humans finding reasons to fit their cultural narrative to justify their means. And there is no one, Christian or non-Christian, who would look at those situations and say, those are okay, those are right. But how do you know those are evil if there isn't a God who is calling them evil? You don't. We are left, however, then, with a final possibility. And that final possibility is that a God does exist, that he is just, that he is good, and that he will not allow evil to ultimately go unchecked. This is the possibility that lies before us and we see, as we begin verse 1 of chapter 3, that this is what Malachi lays out for us. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. What is this, what is this pointing towards? We see this prophecy, this, this prediction of this messenger coming, made come to full fruition in John the Baptist. Right? Mark. 1, chapter 4, if you were to go there, just ever so briefly, Mark 1, 
Um, Chapter 1, 1 through 4, it begins, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, reiterated in Malachi. That's my addition there. But behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This messenger who Malachi is pointing to is John the Baptist. Kings in the old days, they would send a messenger ahead of them if they were going to come to a town. We didn't have social media or the internet or any of these these tools to, to quickly notify people of what was coming. A king would send messengers a day or two ahead of him, in order to let the people know that the king is coming. Prepare yourselves. Don't be caught off guard. Know that the king is going to arrive. And be prepared for his arrival. In this same way, John the Baptist is this messenger letting people know that the king is coming. Christ is coming. Get ready. Prepare yourselves. We're told then at the end of verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We see this then fulfilled in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 36. And in verse 38, Jesus is brought to the temple by his parents. And Simeon, Simeon lifts his eyes up and gives glory to the Lord because the Lord had told him, you will not die until you see the promised one. Christ is brought into his temple. And we're also then told, then the, the, the one in, in whom you, he is coming says, I'm sorry, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight We see this affirmed on Christ when he's baptized by the messenger, John the Baptist. When the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in the form of a dove and we hear the the Father's voice which says, This is my servant in whom I am well pleased. In whom the Lord delights is Christ. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, speaking of Christ, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The king is coming. The evil which you see in the world around you will not go unpunished. It will not go unchecked. He is coming. And then verse 2 says, who can endure the day of his coming? Now the language here, the day of his coming, whenever you see this, this sort of language, the Lord coming with the clouds, or the day of his coming, that sort of regal, royal language, that there is one coming, this king who is coming, with it comes judgment. And if 
you are unrepentant, if you are, have your face turned against the Lord, this is a terrible day. This is a terrible day. You do not want to be before the Lord when he comes if you are not calling him Lord. If you are calling him Lord, this is the most joyful, beautiful, wonderful day. But this will be a terrifying day for those who do not call upon the Lord. And what do we see here in verse 2? Who can endure against this king? No one. No one can endure. Who can stand when he appears? No one. No one will stand. Isaiah 45, Romans 14, they both tell us every knee will bow, no one will stand. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No one will be able to stand in this day. Why? He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap now i don't think that i probably need to explain too much about the refiner's fire this probably makes sense to most of us but just to kind of briefly touch on it you know when you refine gold or when you refine silver you melt it down you take away all the impurities and then when you restore it you have this purified bar of gold or silver that's what the refiner's fire does in that same way we're told that that christ is like the refiner's fire right burning away our impurities but what is the fuller's soap what is the fuller soap so the fuller back in the olden days they didn't have the old olden days uh, they didn't have uh, they didn't have um they didn't have soap in the same way that we did we do now so the fuller soap, really what it was, was when they would shear the wool or the cloth off of, of the, the sheep, or they would make the cloth for the first time, there'd be a lot of impurities within it. And so in order to get the impurities out, there was a very extensive process that would happen. First, you would wash the material with some sort of white clay, um, or there was an ash that had came from, in, in Egypt they would do this, there was an ash that they would get from certain plants and you would, you would wash the material and you'd wipe it with this in order to create the, the white sense to get the impurities out of the cloth or the wool. You'd wash it many times in the river, letting water run over it. They would get young boys to come and trample the material within the river to beat out everything in it that is impure. And then ultimately you would put it in the sun to dry so that it would be as white and as clean as possible. The process that that cloth or that wool went through was not a pleasant one in the sense that it was beat many times over, the whole purpose of it being to get the impurities out of it. What we see through both of these examples is that evil and wicked causes the impurities within us and it will be purged. It will be purged and it will be taken out. 
He will sit as a refiner, verse 3, and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. That's the, the priestly order. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What is the switch that has occurred here? In the last chapter, it's all about how the priestly order is misleading the people. They're taking them astray. The Lord is saying, repent, turn back to me. And now, in this passage... We're told that the sons of Levi, the priestly order, will be purified. What is the switch that has occurred here? What is the switch that has happened? How do these offerings become purified? How is anything ultimately going to be made clean? Well, this is where we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. What has happened? The people going astray, walking away from the Lord, creating this fracture, this division between them and God. They have been reconciled. We, as sinners, have been reconciled to the Lord. And now we are given a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that is Christ. This is how it happens. This is how the reconciliation can take place. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The people were going astray. The people were walking away from God. Brothers and sisters, in our own sinfulness, we go astray and we walk away from God. And yet Christ, in his goodness, came. This is the message that Malachi is telling us this morning. Christ, in his goodness, has come or would come and has come now, taking on our sin. So that we might be reconciled. So that we might be purified. So that we might be made new. And are therefore now pleasing to the Lord. This is why then in verse 4. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem 
will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. Not because Judah did anything to reconcile themselves to God. Not because suddenly they figured it out and they started making right with God. Not because if you somehow live a good enough life, you'll be good with God. But rather, because Christ took on sin so that we might be reconciled to him. Then in verse 5, in verse 5, we hear a call of warning for those who are not reconciled. For those who do not call upon the name of Jesus, for those who want to continue in their sin, making excuses for it, we see a warning. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. Remember, that 2 Corinthians 5 passage tells us that the Lord was slow. He was slow. But when the judgment comes, it will be swift. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who, I'm going to read these together, these can go together, against those who oppress the hired worker, or oppresses the widows, or oppresses the orphans, or thrusts aside and oppresses the sojourner. Those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, I will be swift against. Why? Why would the Lord be swift against these? Why would the Lord punish this evil? The example that we see of Christ is a completely self-sacrificing example. Christ, who knew no sin, took on sin so that we might be reconciled. He did not have to do this. This was of his own goodwill and love for the people that he took on sin. Our sin, my sin, your sin. It's because of his good love. He is completely self-sacrificing. But sin, on the other hand, is completely self-serving. Sin is completely self-serving. You look at these examples. Sorcerers taking advantage of those, claiming to know the future, oftentimes for monetary gain. This is the example we see in the New Testament. You had the sorcerers who had taken advantage of the young girl. They were making money off of her. We have the adulterers. What happens in adultery? I've committed to a spouse... But I want what I want, and I'm going to walk away from that relationship and get what I think is best for me. Self-serving. Against those who swear falsely, those who are lying, those who are taking advantage of others. I'm doing what I think is best for me. I'm self-serving. Anyone who is oppressing workers, or the widows, or the orphans, and taking advantage of them for their own means. 
those individuals. The Lord is swift because they, uh, those individuals are being completely self-serving against the sojourner. Now, we don't have the sojourner in quite the same way that you would have had it during the time of Israel where you had different nations that were kind of more tribal. So you might have someone come into your tribe. But even today, how do we, if we were just to break it down in very simple terms for our own quote-unquote tribe, how do you welcome the one that comes in here that maybe doesn't look or act or speak like you? How do you treat them? They are a sojourner in a sense. There is also the sojourner in terms of how you treat people that are not from this country that you live in, that you call home. The point is to say with all of this, the point is to say that if you are living in a way that is self-serving, these individuals you will oppress. We we all find ourselves in power dynamics in this world. Whether it is people under you at work, whether it is people under you in the home, whether it is people under you in the community, what, or maybe it's people who are over you. All of us are in power relationships in this world. And we have an opportunity to either exploit and take advantage of those individuals or to care for and serve those individuals. All of us have it in some form or another. Even my children have it, right? There are power dynamics constantly in play in the home, right? Will the older sister be kind to the younger brother? All right, how will they treat each other? This happens everywhere. The parable of the unforgiving servant is probably the most poignant example that Christ gives us as to why this all matters. What happens in the parable of the unforgiving servant? You have a servant who owes a humongous debt to a master over him, and the master forgives it. And then he turns around to someone under him who owes a debt which is a fraction of what is owed, and he will not forgive it at all. And the master who forgave the great debt says, do you not understand the debt that I have forgiven to you? That is ultimately the example of what is happening here. Do you understand how great of a debt has been forgiven you by your heavenly father? And what we're seeing here in verse 5 is that if you're not willing to love and serve others who may be underneath you, then the Lord is saying, You do not understand. You are not of me. You do not know the grace that has been shown to you. We find ourselves at the end of all of this with two two questions really to ask ourselves. One, have you bowed the knee to Christ? You will not stand in the end. In the day of judgment... You will not stand. You will bow the knee to Christ. But the Lord is slow to anger. 
and has given us this time on this earth to be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to Christ. Be, sorry, be reconciled by Christ, your heavenly Father. Be reconciled. Why are you waiting? Don't wait. There is only goodness to come when you are reconciled. And there is only suffering to come if you are not. Because the Lord will judge evil. But then the second piece that must be addressed is that all of us must be examining our relationships and asking ourselves, where am I self-serving and how can I be self-sacrificing? Where am I self-serving and how does that need to change so that I am self-sacrificing, so that I am living as Christ lived, giving up of myself completely so that others might know and see and taste and experience the goodness that is the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you this morning as you walk away from this. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? And what in your life needs to change? What have you not given up to him? In what ways are you not self-sacrificing and you are completely self-serving? Challenge yourself with that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for this message from Malachi this morning. We thank you for for the messenger that came in John the Baptist that paved the way for Christ to come, to give us this example, to reconcile us to you, Lord God, to give up of himself, to take on our sin, so that we might be made righteous before the Lord. This is the only way, God, that we will endure the day of the Lord, is to be made right with you, through the work of Christ. Lord God, we thank you for the ability to hear your words this morning. And may it transform us, Lord. May we not go from this place as a blind man or a deaf man, not having seen or heard your words, Lord. But may we go with eyes reopened, Ears hearing things afresh, made aware, Lord God, that you will be faithful, that you will be just, and that your will will be done, that you will punish wickedness, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.